welcome to the Power of Sports podcast, where the jocks meet the geeks, but no one gets thrown in a locker. On today's episode, we will hear from Robert, aka Bob Whiting, who is the best-selling author of more than half a dozen books on Japan, including one bestseller that was the first book I ever read about Japan. But I want to start by reading one passage from a book Bob wrote that wasn't about sports. In fact, it was about one Nick Zapetti, an American who got into some shady business dealings as head of a company called Lansko while he lived in Tokyo after World War II. This is from Bob's book called Tokyo Underworld, which won many awards and is now in production to become a feature film. Quote, Lansko had somehow come into the possession of a thousand pounds of stolen gumballs, which the company was unable to sell. Lansko representatives went to stores, kiosks, and open-air stalls all over the Ginza, explaining that gumballs were the latest rage back in the United States but found there was absolutely no interest. The Japanese merchants they spoke with had never seen gumballs before, and after one viewing said, quite candidly, that they did not care to see them again. There were all sorts of objections. The gumballs didn't suit Japanese tastes. They weren't sweet enough. The artificial coloring didn't look right. They stained the hands, and so on and so forth. That Lansko had no gumball machines with which to dispense the gumballs did not help matters. Faced with such obstinacy, Lansko turned to the Toseikai, employing a band of young Korean thugs from the gang to revisit all the shop owners and describe what would happen to them if they did not revise their inventory plans. This new sales strategy proved remarkably more effective than the previous one. Soon, the downtown area was inundated with gumballs. Close quote. Praise for Tokyo Underworld even included the highest admiration from Mario Puzo, the author of The Godfather, who described the book as a quote, fascinating look at fascinating people who show how democracy advances hand-in-hand with crime in Japan, close quote. Whiting's books have all been translated into Japanese and have sold in eye-popping numbers. He's written 20 books in Japanese, and all told, his works have sold an aggregate of nearly 2 million copies worldwide. His latest book, Tokyo Junkie, 60 Years of Bright Light and Back Alleys and Baseball, will soon be published by Stonebridge Press and is unsurprisingly getting rave reviews. I've long admired Whiting's effortless prose, and I had the good fortune of meeting him a few years back when I was living in Japan. It was a pleasure to sit down with him again, to get his perspective on baseball, his journey to writing best-selling sports books, and what the power of sports means to him now. Bob, welcome, and thank you so much for joining me on the Power of Sports podcast. To me, you don't recognize me, do you? Looks like Paul Bunyan. <laughs> well, you know, it's been a long time since we've been locked down here in California. So it's a COVID beard. I got a lot of time on my hands, Bob. Let me tell you. <laughs> How are you doing? I'm fine. I've been fairly easy. There have been a couple of lockdowns, but you know, moderate stuff. The worst it ever got was you could go to a restaurant until seven, and they close it down. You know, I mean, people still life goes on. Uh, I wanted to first ask you about your earliest experiences in sports. What was the first sport that you played? Basketball. Mm -hmm. Uh, I played on the high school basketball team. I ran track. I never played baseball. never played football. For some reason, I liked to watch and listen to baseball. I was crazy about the old Brooklyn Dodgers and Duke Snyder. First baseball game I saw was in San Francisco in 1959, Willie Mays. And, and uh, Sam Jones. Mm-hmm. That was a lot of fun. 
And so you grew up in Eureka, California. So that was a special trip to drive down to San Francisco for that game. Or were you there for some other reason? No, I just drove down for the game. It was an eight hour drive, 300 miles. And I remember walking into the ballpark and just stunned at how big it was. This was old Seal Stadium, which is a little tiny bandbox. And I just couldn't imagine that anybody could actually hit a ball over the <laughs> fence in the outfield. It was so far away. But anyway, it was quite a trip watching Willie Mays play center field. And how old were you at the time? I was 16. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so beyond baseball, what other sports did you watch as a kid? Well, you know, everybody watched the NFL, the San Francisco 49ers. That was the era of Y.A. Tittle and R.C. Owens and uh, before you were born. <laughs> but, you know, every Sunday afternoon, you know, everything came to a halt. We had to watch the 49ers play on TV. Basketball, pro basketball. I remember the San Francisco Dons had Bill Russell. They won the national championship and then he went on to become a big star with the Boston Celtics Hall of Fame Center. Mm-hmm. So I watched them all. And, you know, I used to cut out the scores and articles in the paper and keep a scrapbook. I don't know why. I have no idea what ever happened to the scrapbook. Yeah, it was a, a connection. And I was actually disappointed when the Brooklyn Dodgers moved to Los Angeles. I thought they lost something of their identity. But the San Francisco Giants took their place. And, yeah, I remember Willie Mays complaining that the white neighborhood didn't want him to move in. I just remember reading about it. I remember the mayor of the town, you know, stepping in. And Hmm. I forget exactly what he did, but he said, you know, Willie can come live next door to me or live in my house. He's Mm -hmm. welcome or something like that. That's pretty powerful stuff. I think anywhere in America, but I think people who live in the Bay Area now might be appalled to hear that was the case back then in you know the liberal Bay Area. So did you have a favorite coach or teacher or even maybe a writer who inspired you growing up? Well. I never thought I'd be a writer. My basketball coach, I, I like, he put me in the starting lineup. I thought that was very prescient of him. <laughs> my statistical line did not warrant my being in the starting lineup. So why do you do it, Bob? Why do you put you in the starting lineup? <laughs> he thought I had promise, a potential. I see. And did you enjoy playing basketball? Was that your favorite sport or was it track? I like basketball the best. I thought baseball was a little too slow. You know? mm-hmm. uh, I like the energy and the fast pace of basketball. And, you know, the whole thing was over in a couple of hours. And, I mean, you're really exhausted at the end. Baseball was, you know, too time-consuming. But then I realized when I got to Japan that, you know, the Americans were playing baseball at warp speed compared to... Yes, indeed. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And then you went on to spend a great deal of your time thinking and writing about baseball in the years that would come. Tell our listeners a little bit about how you made it to Japan. I had a a really difficult home life. Absentee father, angry mother, tyrant. I mean, she had a very difficult childhood. She was the oldest of four children. And when she was 12, her father was this kind of, you know, racetrack gambler. And her mother was a barroom floozy. And they just up and left her and the kids and she never saw them again. So the state brought her in, farmed the kids out to different houses. And when she was 16, she was called down to the local board to identify her mother's body, who was dead from a drug overdose. 
Oh, my. So she married my father, who went off into the Navy, and he was stationed in California at the end of his tour after the war. He was in Guadalcanal, and he brought the family out to Santa Rosa. But she would never recover from it. It was just always there. I mean, you could cut the tension in the house with a knife. That's why my father was never home. Mm. So I left, and I just reached a point where I couldn't take it anymore. I remember I was on the honor roll in high school. Mm-hmm. My senior year, and I got in a C in algebra. It was the only C that I had in my entire scholastic career. And I took it again to raise my grade, and I flunked it. I just quit. Mm-hmm. The only person in the history of Eureka High School, I'm sure, who did something like that. But I just wanted to get out. I enrolled in Humboldt State. When I turned 18, I left. Went to the Air Force. They sent me to... Uh, this electronic intelligence school. They asked me where I wanted to go. I said, I want to go to Berlin. Oh, really? I thought that was, you know, spy central. And they sent me to Japan instead. I had no idea. I didn't know anything about Japan. I didn't know where Tokyo was. I thought it was somewhere in Hong Kong. So why'd they give you the choice? If they were just going to tell you that? That's typical of the military. I think it's good. They have this perverse sense of humor. Let's say, what, find out where the guy wants to go and send him <laughs> as far away from it as possible. <laughs> it certainly sounds like that. So you get to Japan, I think it was 1962 that you arrived. Right. You're in the Air Force. Your job is monitoring radar screens, I believe, to make sure the Cold War doesn't become hot. And you get the chance to get some R&R in Tokyo. And you have some, sounds like some really wild times in reading your book, Tokyo Junkie. The one thing I was thinking as I read this part of your book, Bob, was that you had a lot more fun in Tokyo than I did. (laughs) It was great. But, you know, I I love this one story you tell in the book about this Dr. Sato who you meet, you teach him English and he's plastic surgeon. He's got a lot of money. He's well connected. He's introducing you to the high society. And and then eventually he decides to uh, replace you with a different English teacher who has more curves than verbs. I love the way I love the way you put that. But I think I love this book so much because it really does tell the reader what you think about Japan and baseball and sports in general in a very nuanced way. And there's, you know, of course, a lot of touching stories and coming of age moments that you go into as it's a memoir. But it's so personal. It sums up, I think, what a lot of us who've lived in Japan for a long time think about Japan. There's pros, there's cons, and there's everything in between. So I want to ask, what is something that you think all non-Japanese people or people who haven't visited Japan should know about Japan? Well, my attraction is Tokyo. Mm-hmm. I don't think I'd want to live anywhere else. Mm-hmm. Maybe Kyoto, I don't know. But, you know, Tokyo is special. But it's just got everything. Well, what most people, non-Japanese, don't know about Tokyo right now, it's it's the number one city in the world. You know, on a lot of different metrics, Mm -hmm. it's the largest city, population-wise, greater Tokyo. It's got the highest GDP of any city in the world. It has more Michelin-starred restaurants than any other city in the world. It has twice as many three-star Michelin restaurants as Paris does. Which is amazing. It's got the lowest crime rate of any major city in the world, probably the highest education level of any major city in the world. It has the most extensive subway and train system in the world. It's also the cleanest and the most efficient, impossible to get lost. You know, this 
dulcet voice tells you you're about to come into a station 10 seconds before. You know, in a New York subway, you can hardly hear what the conductor's saying. You know, <laughs> I love the descriptions that you have in Tokyo Junkie. I flagged a couple of them, but one is this appetizing, colorful wax replica of a banana, tomato, and cucumber <laughs> sandwich that you once yeah. found at a coffee shop window. I mean, yeah. that is so funny. And then you said Tokyo was a city where umbrellas appeared as if by magic at the very yeah. first raindrop. And I just thought that was just so poetic and true. It's such an amazing place and you really bring it to life in that book. So what is your process as a writer? Do you have a thing that you do? Do you wake up early? Do you write every day? Do you stay up late? I get up at six, go for a walk, have breakfast, and then write from nine to two. I write every day. You have mm -hmm. to write every day. I write a column, a weekly column, and I'm always working on one book or another. So there's something to write about. I need at least 10 drafts before something is ready to be published. When I'm finished with it, when I think it's okay, I'll stand up and read it out loud, which I think is a very good device. It helps you weed out, you know, the clumsy parts, the parts that don't work. You just know automatically. Sometimes I'll stand in front of a mirror and do it, pretend I'm giving a speech. I think that's a very useful exercise. It's just a lot of hard work. You know, I remember seeing an interview with Erwin Shaw the famous novelist, mm -hmm. Rich Man, Poor Man, and some other great books. Everybody said, well, what? you know, he's got just effortless prose. And he says, hey, man, I sweat over every single word. <clears throat> Agonize over yes. it. So it's very hard. And this one, this memoir, was even harder. It's so subjective. You don't mm -hmm. know what people... I'm doing a nonfiction book like Tokyo Under with the God Have Why. You know what stories are going to resonate with people when you're mm -hmm. writing it and you, you kind of smirk to yourself. You know, you've got something. Mm -hmm. This one, I write about how this cartoon, Kyoji no Hoshi, Star of the Giants, about a boy who goes through this brutal training regimen with his insane father. The whole thing resonated with me because it just symbolized what. Japan was this perfectionist society. They, they go all out. There's aren't any limits to how far they would go in, the, in pursuit of excellence. And, you know, so I'm thinking to myself as I'm writing this, what are people going to think about some guys, you know, writing about himself, watching this children's cartoon? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks to getting all emotional about it. But, you know, I guess it worked out okay, but that's what I mean about writing this kind of book, you just don't know how other people are going to react to what you think is important. Mm -hmm. going to, you could just ruin a book, I think, by putting the wrong thing in. You know, I don't know if I ever told you this when we met in Tokyo or when you came to San Francisco, we met here, but You Gotta Have Wa was the first book I ever read on Japan and one of the best as well. My best friend bought it for me before I went off to Japan to teach English. I think I read it on the plane. I mean, I, I couldn't put it down. And a couple of weeks later, I was actually at Koshien because we were sent to Japan in the summer. And I thought to myself, well, I got to go to this place. So I got on a train from Ehime, way far away. I mean, maybe the length of, you know, you going from Eureka to San Francisco. And I mm -hmm. went up to Koshien for a couple of days and watched some baseball. So it really hooked me, that book. And I know that there's no doubt that you know, I wouldn't have gone on to study Japanese sports if not for that book. So I, I just want to thank you for that. So what was it that drove you to write that book, You've Got to Have Wa? Well, it was started with Chrysanthemum in the Bat. Mm -hmm. 
I got interested in baseball in Japan in the beginning because it was the only thing I could understand on television. Mm. And they have a game, the Yomi Giants, on every night. Most teams had two foreigners. Half the, the broadcast was in, you know, Japanese English. You know, home run, banto, safe, auto, strike. It was something to relate to. And because you, it was so popular with the Japanese, you know, you could strike up a conversation about baseball. It was a common point. That's how I learned to, to speak and read Japanese. I would pick up the sports papers every day and study the kanji. It's a great way to learn it. It's fantastic way. To me, that's part of the power of sports. Would you agree? You know, this common language that, that people yeah. share across cultures? Yeah. And especially in Japan, where, they, you know, these sports newspapers have these enormous circulations, right? They, I mean, it's unimaginable in America. There is no sports daily in America, is there? It's just the there weekly, used to I guess. Be, there used to be one, but I guess it went out of business, but they've got five or six in Japan. Circulation is over a million. That's great. It's incredible. Yeah. I mean, the readership of newspapers in general is so high in, in Japan. But I want to go back a little bit to the 1960s, if you don't mind, and talk about the Tokyo Olympics, because I know that it seems like from your memoir, that was a watershed moment, not only for Japan, which I think a lot of people know, but also for you. And so I wonder what you learned from those Olympic Games. You were in Tokyo, of course, for those. What got me in the beginning was the preparation for the Olympics, the construction that just went on. There was something else. You could stand in uh, Skiabashi near the Ginza. On one side of the street, they'd be tearing a building down. The other side, they'd be putting one up. You stay in the, in the 24 hour a day construction. You stay overnight you know they would have these black curtains on the hotel rooms because uh, these blinding construction lights were everywhere they yeah. rip open the streets and at night to build the subways and patch them back up in the morning and you know you had to need earphones because of the, uh, the pile drivers going all night Just boom boom people were wondering whether the japanese were actually going to make it on time but they did you know in the span of a few short years Tokyo had gone from this third world backwater city into this major megalopolis, which became with, you know, 10,000 new buildings, eight new overhead highways, two new subway lines, five new five-star hotels. Five years before, only 25% of the buildings, residences in Tokyo had flush toilets. You couldn't drink the water. Infant mortality rate was high. And that all changed. In 1966, the James Bond crew, Sean Connery, came to Japan to film The Only Lift Twice. That's how dramatic the change was. And they went from holding those Olympics, turned them from a defeated nation into a country that the world, they're announcing that they were a country to be reckoned with. Mm. So just the fact how they pulled it off it was just stunning. Yes. And, you know, I forgot to mention the bullet train mm -hmm, <laughs> they mm -hmm. built and then the, the monorail from Haneda into the center of the city. And then the Olympics themselves were, it just, I had to cut a lot of stuff out about the Olympics, you know, like Bob Hayes story and Al mm -hmm. Warner and American basketball team, because started out with a 175,000 word manuscript. Mm -hmm. So I had to cut everything extraneous out. The, the U-2 spy plane stuff that I worked with, but just to 
you know, boil it down to my relationship with the city, mm -hmm. mutual transformation of me from a stupid 19 year old kid into an adult in Tokyo from this, you know, third world backwater into this megalopolis that is now the number one city in the world. The Olympics themselves were, there were three events I thought that really said something about the Japanese psyche. One was the marathon where, this, I can never get his name right, Tsurubaya, Tsuburaya, Tsurubaya, excuse me. And he came into the stadium behind Abebe, the Ethiopian runner, and he, it looked like he had this silver medal wrapped up. And then this runner from the UK, Basil Heathley, passed him, you know, at the last spurt and took the silver. And he apologized to everybody afterward. He was mortified that he cost Japan the silver medal. And he wound up committing suicide. Because of that, he had hurt himself and he couldn't compete in the Mexico Olympics. So, you know, slashed his throat. And the next one was the, the judo, the open weight judo event. The first time judo had been in the Olympics and this was going to be Japan's event. They mm -hmm. won all the, the six lower divisions. And then this Kaminaga was matched against Anton Haysing, uh, the Dutch guy. He was six foot six, 240 pounds. And Kaminaga was pretty big. He's 5'11, 220 pounds. But he was defeated convincingly. And that was a big uh, shock to, because the whole idea of judo is that with proper technique and training, a smaller man can defeat a bigger man. That's right. And that wasn't the case. And mm -hmm. I remember watching that in Ginza, some, you know, TV show window. And people were just devastated. Japanese guys standing around me. This was the next to last day of the competition. The next night was the volleyball finals between the Japanese women and the Soviet. And the Soviet women, Soviet team were bigger and stronger than the Japanese, but the Japanese had trained harder. Mm -hmm. Can you believe starting at, you know, three o'clock in the afternoon and going to one in the morning every day for a year? doing these drills where you you have to roll over on the hardwood and you know return the ball that the coaches shot over the net i mean really intense stuff this is you know it's typical of all japanese sports but this was like women's volleyball version of Koji no hoshi star of the Giants. just total you know punishment and it worked and they won easily and so that sort of rescued the nation rescued this whole idea of fighting spirit and Konjo, as the Japanese say. Mm -hmm. And today, I mean, that was the highest. The, the TV rating, the video research rating was 95%. Unbelievable. It's the highest rated sports today. It's still the highest rated sports program in the history of uh, Japanese television. And it certainly seems like there was national pride on the line with that particular event. And especially, like you say, after Kaminaga Akio lost to the, the Dutchman in, in judo, the sport that was supposed to be the Japanese sport they were supposed to dominate. What do you think it is about sports that the Japanese really you know, want to win so badly on an international level? Well, there's a female sports journalist named Midori Asayama who wrote an essay about that in which she laid it out quite spectacularly, I thought. She said, 
that we Japanese have never been part of the world, not in the Meiji era, not before the war, not after. We've never been card-carrying members of the international community. Mm. We're just known, you know, as people who could make things, as products, these faceless robotic people who could make products. And when Japanese emerged victorious in major Olympic competition, it changed that. That was a precursor of what happened with Hideo Nomo, first went to the major leagues, and then Ichido, who became MVP in his first season. Mm-hmm. It really did say it just totally uplifted the nation. It gave them a kind of identity that uh, international on the global scene that they'd been lacking up until then. I don't know how to explain this. It's just you identify with these people who succeed on an international stage, and it makes you feel better about themselves. The, I remember watching Nomo mm-hmm. at his first game, standing in front of a Jumbotron TV set in front of Shibuya Station at 8 o'clock in the morning. Yeah. And he's surrounded by these Japanese businessmen their briefcases on the way to work. They're just smiling at each other, you know. That's did the only way they that? can get out of going to work, right? <laughs> did, yeah, did you see that? Oh, that's great. Hey, she's showing those Americans what Japanese can do. And it was the same thing as uh, the volleyball final in the Olympics. I remember watching that with a group of people, and they were just, book of Japanese, they were just stunned. So this brings me back to, you know, this connection that you have with baseball, but also the Japanese have with baseball. And then through that connection, it seems pretty clear that you're able to, to connect with Japanese people through sports. And so you use the expression in your book when you were right. learning Japanese and you would strike up conversations with people in Japan by asking, did the Giants win? Yes. And so at that time, you know, I think we maybe we take for granted sometimes how much sports allow us to communicate with each other. But at that time, what kind of role do you think baseball played in helping you communicate with Japanese people? Well, it helped me understand the culture because the great thing about sporting events is that they're right there out in public and you can see them. It's different from business world and politics where most things happen behind closed doors and you really don't see the dynamic, but you can see it in in sports. I remember going to a stadium in 1962 in the summer to see my first ever Japanese professional baseball game between the Yomiuri Giants and the Chunichi Dragons. The third batter in the order for the Giants was Sadaharu Oh, a man who would hit 768 uh, career home runs, or 700, I think it was 768. And in a cleanup slot was their third baseman, then national heartthrob Shigeo Nagashima. You know, had won several batting titles and had the movie star good looks, right? And this is, you know, the great one-two punch. These guys are the Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig of Japan. And so what happens? The first inning, the center fielder Shibata hits a single. The next second batter is the second baseman, Doi. He lays down to sacrifice bunt. So the runner goes down to second base. First base is open. O gets walked, and then Nagashima comes up and gets pitches to hit. And I could never understand that. This manager, Kawakami, he's considered probably the greatest manager in the history of Japanese baseball. He sacrificed Bunnett 100 times a year. That's like three times as many as anybody in the major leagues do. And if that, and it's this idea that even if they're not, the batters will do it, even if they're not told to by the coaches. It's one way of avoiding failure, but it's also 
It's a way of showing that you're contributing to the team. And self-sacrifice is a big part of the Japanese culture. You know, you let the next guy take the credit. You do your part as, a, you know, the group. And so you see the news reports about how hard they practice. You know, they start mm-hmm. voluntary training around January 4th. <laughs> it's called voluntary training, but they're out there on the field and they're front office executives in their civilian clothes, you know, watching them. And then camp starts February 1st, which is like a month, almost a month ahead of the major leagues. And these guys are out there every day from seven in the morning until six in the evening. And they have indoor workouts and lectures. And it's just this total commitment, dedication. And which I saw when I started working for a Japanese company in which the People would work, you know, my, the contract said you work from nine to five, but nobody went home at five o'clock. That's right. It was like nobody wanted to be the first one to go because that showed that you were insincere. So you sit there and you had this Japanese game, Gaman Kurabe, you know, how long can you bear it? So it'd be a game to see who would be the first to crack, you know, would mm-hmm. the first guy leave at six or 6.30 or seven? And then, you know, coming on Saturday and then working Sunday would be golf day. Everybody in the company had to go golfing together. So that kind of dedication and meetings every day, there were meetings every morning. And I had plenty of work to do. And I could never understand why I had to go listen to some guy in accounting, you know, read a bunch of figures that didn't mean anything to me. You know, I was (laughs) creating materials to sell. But that was important because that created group harmony. Mm-hmm. And I've, you know, worked in American companies since there, you know, and I've done some reading about the way American companies operate. And it's just, it's not like that at all. It's a much more individualistic thing. You're not required to attend these mandatory meetings every day if you don't have anything to say. You know, it's right. much more rational. But in Japan, the spirit of togetherness is more important than anything else, fostering that spirit. And it's like you've got the other guy's back. And it's it's a kind of beautiful thing. Yeah, that's what comes through in your memoir, Bob. It really does about that togetherness. And it seems like it really was a home away from home for you in that sense. A lot of hospitable strangers, effectively, who then became friends that you met along the way. I really appreciate the fact that you wrote the book because you've already written many best-selling books. And so you certainly didn't need to write a memoir. One of my things about reading anything is finding out who the author is. You know, as a writer myself, I just want to know who is speaking these words to me, you know? And so the first thing I read is the back of the book and the about the author. But the about the author is never very long. And so it's nice to have a memoir to kind of put things together. So... You're talking about Konjo and this fighting spirit and Doryoku, and you write about how the Japanese believe that these things can help to prevail over the most daunting odds. And I quote, they are values that not coincidentally helped lift Japan from the ashes of defeat and war to become an economic superpower. It was the stuff of blood and guts that was thought to have brought the nation otherwise unattainable success in the Olympics. Super mental health. And willpower could overcome any perceived physical deficiencies, and no measures were too extreme to inculcate that desired stick-to-itiveness. Close quotes. Do you think there's something about team sports, in particular in Japan, that helps to keep these narratives alive within Japan? 
because of course it's not just sports where these narratives are strong, but it's, as you mentioned, working in a Japanese company, they're pretty powerful in the company as well. We keep coming back to two things that really stuck in my mind were the engineer shipbuilder architect at Mitsubishi was offered this enormous salary to move to Norway and work for Japanese. This was in the mid sixties. And, you know, he quadrupled his salary and they pay for his kids' education, chauffeured, blah, blah, blah. And he turned it down. It's just, I can't, I've got to help my country. So you probably can't understand that because you're an American. And then this, you know, the whole idea of pitching, where Americans would say that the pitching is an unnatural motion and that every time you throw, you tear tiny muscles in your arms. Mm-hmm. And if you go out and pitch a nine-inning game, that it takes, you know, three, four, five days, depending on the individual, for the tissue to heal before you can go out and throw hard again. But the Japanese believe that, you know, the fighting spirit conquers all and that the the way to overcome these uh, tiny muscle tears is to go out and throw even more. <laughs> and it's, that thinking has changed somewhat now that you have Nomo and these other pitchers, Darvish, going to the States. But I was reading the other day about this 33-year-old pitcher, former high school star for the Nippon Ham Fighters who went out in camp and this 21-day program of throwing 200 pitches every day. <laughs> Can you believe Unbelievable. And, you, you know, they in America, they, you know, you never allow, a coach would never allow a guy to do something like that. You know, 200 pitches in one session, even once during camp, you've got to, you know, gradually build up and then you rest between starts. And there'd be legal liability there too, I imagine, yeah. in America. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So is there something about baseball in particular in Japan? You know, I wanted to ask you about, of course, your experiences and writings about baseball, but in your memoir, you talk about sumo. And I found that really interesting as well. You write that sumo was a difficult sport with a long tradition, one of carefully graded hierarchies. And so I wonder if you see similarities between baseball and sumo in Japan or differences, and especially in terms of the meaning that each sport holds for the Japanese people. Well, Japanese are very conscious of rank. Seniority still prevails today, even despite the attempts of many of these young entrepreneurs to change that. It still makes a difference. Seniority counts in a company. Everybody has a name card, and everybody's position is on that name card. And just by exchanging name cards, you can know whether this guy's rank in society and in business is higher or lower than yours, so you know how to address him and what kind of bow to deliver. And even in baseball, some kid can be a, you know, a rookie star, but he's still got to go out and go buy a pack of cigarettes for the veterans if they ask him to, that kind of thing. Yes. You know, you have to go through this kind of hazing period. There's a famous story about Kiyohara, who was Kazuhiro Kiyohara, who was a huge star for the Sable Lions and the Yomiuri Giants and sure. retired several years ago. He played for this big high school factory. In Japan, the high school baseball is sort of like NCAA football. You know, you're recruited out of junior high school, you live in a dormitory, and that's all you do is play baseball your entire time. And this kid made the starting lineup in his sophomore year, and he hit a home run in his first game as he's rounding the bases and comes into the dugout. 
expecting to be warmly congratulated by his teammates, the captain slugs him in the mouth. (laughs) Don't get a big head. Just remember you're still, you know, a sophomore on this team. Wow. Let me move on to comparisons between baseball in America and Japan, and particularly in terms of styles of play or coaching. You know, what do you see more recently in terms of the differences between styles of play and coaching in Japan and the U.S.? What are your observations there? Well, the sacrifice bunt is still king. They still sacrifice bunt two or four times as much as the major leaguers. Mm -hmm. The training is just as intense as ever. It's getting a little more sophisticated about pitching. Mm-hmm. When I first came, it used to, the starting pitchers used to pitch on two days rest. So they get 350, 400 innings a year. And a lot of them, their arms went bad and they were out of the game by age 30. So they're a little more careful now that pitching, you know, starting pitchers go once a week or once every five or six days. But they still, air it out in spring training and you know they have something called nagekomi which means marathon pitching or you throw until you can't throw anymore mm-hmm. they'll go out on a couple of different days in this february camp and throw 350 400 pitches which is incredible you know nobody wouldn't be allowed in the states but they think that it's necessary because they say only by reaching your limits and surpassing them, you know, can you know what you're capable of? Mm. It's like they had this drill, a thousand fungo drill, where you feel ground balls until you can't feel them anymore. It was like two or three hours it would take. And every player, you know, they don't do this as much as they used to, but when I first came, it was a common in camp. Every player had to do it once during spring training. To go out there, and it wasn't a fielding drill. The coaches would hit the ball to the left and back to the right and make you dive to the left and dive to the right. And you had to keep going until you just dropped from exhaustion. And then they would come and, you know, carry you off the field. It wasn't fielding. It wasn't conditioning. It was just a drill to develop your fighting spirit to see how far you could reach your limits and surpass them. Mm-hmm. It's a very important thing. This is the philosophy of the martial arts, by the way. Mm-hmm. Japanese took Western sports. They took all Western sports that came to Japan dating back to the late 19th century and turned them into martial arts or grafted the philosophy of the martial arts onto them, meaning endless training. So you don't, it's not a seasonal thing. You play all year, from, you, you practice all year from New Year's and, until Christmas, and you train several hours a day. And a lot of this training involves reaching limits. This goes back to the late 19th century, where the first higher school of Tokyo was a prep school for Imperial University, where the movers and shakers of Japan went. Mm-hmm. And this team defeated a team of Americans from Yokohama in the first game ever played between Japanese and Americans. And this Japanese team from the first higher school had grafted the philosophy of the martial arts. Training every day from January to February, you know, a thousand swings at night in the team dormitory, a special camps in summer and winter when school was in vacation. It was forbidden to use the word ouch because it was mm. considered a sign of weakness. So if you got hit in the face with a fastball and you had a bloody nose and it was really painful, then you're allowed to use the word kaiui, which means it itches. <laughs> yes. And this was the majority of the students in that 
school were came from samurai families. So they grafted the philosophy of the martial arts. And because they defeated him, they defeated him in several games, defeated the Americans. This was big news, front page news in the Japanese papers. And that's how baseball became a national sport. And all the other schools copied the first higher school of Tokyo. It's the reason today that you're in high school and you've joined the baseball team, you've got to be there all year. Yes. Ichiro played in this high school in Nagoya. He lived in the dormitory. He got mm. one day off a year to go visit mm. his parents. Mm. And you said baseball becomes the national sport after the victory over the Yokohama team of, of Americans. And do you think that was part of the reason why other sports didn't necessarily become quite as big in Japan? Because here's a sport that, you know, they, it's invented by Americans. I think you call it in the book, a quintessentially American game. Right. And then the Japanese are able to beat Americans at it. Of course, it's banned during World War II, but then it comes back and it becomes incredibly popular in the post-war period as well. What, what do you think is the reason why other sports haven't been able to supplant baseball as the, the number one spectator sport of the Japanese? Well, because the Japanese players do so well. Mm-hmm. Ichiro, Nomo, Otani, all the top players will go to America. I mean, they've been, you know, ice skating is quite popular now. Japanese have had you know, figure skate, have had world figure skating champions, Olympic champions. This cut into baseball somewhat. I, you know, rugby was extremely popular for a time after the Japanese defeated the South African mm-hmm. rugby team. In a match, you know, so I think if Japan won the World Rugby Cup, I think you'd see everybody playing rugby. Is that right? Because baseball, they're so successful in baseball. It's the sport they're most successful at vis-a-vis the rest of the world. And do you attribute that to the coaching styles like Kawakami's from way back when? Or do you think there's something else that, I mean, obviously we know that a lot of Japanese youngsters who are good athletes are encouraged to play baseball, but. What do you think the factors are that gives the Japanese so much success in international baseball? But in martial arts philosophy, mm. constant practice, because the thing that's most of the successful players who go to the States from Japan are pitchers. And they're raising a system where they have to be throwing constantly, practicing every day. And so as a result, they're, they've got complete mastery, complete control. I mean, control that American pitchers just can't imagine. They can't copy. Mm. And they can throw several different pitches where Americans, they're big and strong. And so they'll go for the 100 mile hour fastball and the changeup. No, that's it. But, you know, guys like you, Darvish, you've got eight different pitches and can throw them all for strikes. So because of that practice, this constant effort to improve and to perfect the game, to an extent that surpasses what Americans do. There are individuals who do a lot, of, but generally speaking, uh, that's the reason that they're so successful. You know, this is really fascinating, Bob, and I really appreciate you sharing your thoughts on baseball and, and sports in Japan. And I wonder if I may ask a question I ask everybody that I interview for this podcast, but what is the power of sports to you? I mean, given your longstanding relationship to baseball in particular, but also Japan and cross-cultural relations. I mean, I suppose there's a lot of ways you could go with that, but I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that question. Well, aside from the cross-cultural stuff, which we already discussed, I would say that, you know, sports in general, it's like going to the movies, you know, it gives you a break from the daily routine of your life Mm -hmm. and transports you to another world. 
And uh, sports is special because it shows us what we're capable of. We watch sporting events because we want to see athletes perform heroic deeds. Mm -hmm. And uh, we want to see somebody you know, pitch a no-hitter or hit mm -hmm. three or four home runs or a 600-foot home you know, something spectacular. That's one of the reasons that we go. We're watching people who can do things that we can't do. And it, it's kind of inspiring in a way because mm -hmm. it shows us what the human race is capable of. And it maybe in some bizarre way, it pushes us to their excellence ourselves. Do you feel that it has for you, pushed you to be a better writer, better human yeah, being, I, anything like that? You know, I remember studying Aristotle in, in college. Mm -hmm. I had to take this course in Greek philosophy. And I remember Aristotle saying that happiness is the pursuit of excellence and a mm -hmm. worthwhile goal. Mm -hmm. And then I, that's stuck with me. And I remember JFK using that in a speech mm -hmm. one time. And I thought, yeah, that makes sense. And the Japanese do the same thing with this pursuit of excellence. They're perfectionists in everything they do. Mm -hmm. And it's the pursuit that's the key, mm -hmm. not the goal. You know, it's the effort that you make that is rewarding. Doing your best is what's rewarding. So if you have a day where you maybe for some reason you can't get to the computer to do some writing, do you feel like that pursuit has been disrupted somewhat? It sounds like writing is your craft and part of how you, you know, pursue that Aristotelian goal. Yeah, I do. I, I, I do feel uncomfortable if I spend a day away from the, I mean, I have, there are plenty of times I go on vacation with my wife and travel around Europe, but no, I just think it's really rewarding and i'm sitting in front of the computer you know from nine to two time goes by just like that mm -hmm. yeah i, I start at nine and I, it's wake up and it's two already yeah you know what i mean right? i do i do i know that feeling i really do and i guess that begs the question then bob what's the next book i know you just finished this one so you probably find it too early to be asked that question but i did a book after Tokyo Underworld, I did a sequel to Tokyo Underworld for the Japanese market called Tokyo Outsider. It was mm -hmm. a, a lot of characters that were similar to the main, you know, people who had broken the law or lived in, operated in the shadows. You know, there was a black ops group called the Cannon Agency that operated during the occupation of the CIA in the 50s. And some criminals, guys who were arrested, for, you know, con artists who operated. And I was going to publish that in English and in conjunction with the movie version of Tokyo Underworld, mm -hmm. which went through five different studios over a period of 20 years. And I remember you telling me, yeah. Well, now it's at Legendary Global, and it, it looks like it's going. Terrence Winter is the Wolf of Wall Street guys writing the script, and Sherry Marsh, who did the Pose and the Vikings, is a producer. So it looks like it's going to happen. So that's the book I'm doing, and I'm adding some new stuff like the, the Carlos Ghosn story. Yeah. There's a chapter on the Bobby Valentine story. I think it sort of fits in that category of these evil forces that were conspiring against him. What do you think that was, Bob, about Bobby Valentine, that he didn't fit into the, the ways of Japan? Well, it's his personality. I mean, he's a hard was a hard worker, and he knows baseball, and he helped his... He made the Lotte Orient into a better team. 
but uh, Chiba Marines, Lotte Marines, I'm sure. But, you know, he had, uh, there was this Bobby Valentine cult, you know, Yes. Drove down Bobby Valentine Way to get to the stadium, and there was this big video screen as you entered the main gate with Bobby saying welcome. And, and then there was his poster, his photos all over the place, and Bobby Valentine's sports bar. And, you know, some of the players were complaining about that, that their manager hogged the spotlight. And he gave them a Japan championship. I mean, that's, that's right. Basically, he's doing, but the Japanese executives got jealous and you know they just sort of it was like going at nissan in a way mm-hmm. oh yeah that's a very interesting parallel there they were afraid that renault renault was going to take over nissan mm. i think that was what the reason for all this they just wanted to get rid of him of course you know he also looted the company <laughs> <laughs> yeah there's that too <laughs> but you know he was getting paid much less than I think his salary was, you know, nine million a year, but guys at GM were making double that. Mm-hmm. And he was doing a much better job. So I think that was it. And they just didn't, you know, they were seeing this their prized Japanese company being taken over by foreigners. They were afraid they're gonna lose it. That's what I think. How interesting. Well, I can't wait to see what you come up with there. And, and really, anything you write, Bob, I'm, I'm going to be reading. So thank you again so oh, much for that. Oh, of course. I mean, it's the honest truth. Like yours was the first book I ever read on Japan. So, you know, it's fun, especially now that I don't live in Japan anymore. It's a lot of fun to read anything that you write on Japan. So I hope you continue to write, not necessarily about sports, because I read your other stuff too. But thank you so much for doing this podcast for me, Bob. I really appreciate it. Uh, my pleasure. It was great fun. Thank you very much. Well, that'll wrap it up for our show this time. I hope you enjoyed it. Did Bob's experiences resonate with your own? I know they did with me, especially as a writer and a fan of all things Japan. My sincere thanks to Bob Whiting for making it a great hour of my life, and my sincere thanks to you for listening. I never forget that my listeners are what makes this show possible, so please find me on my Patreon page and share your comments, questions, or suggestions for future episodes. You can find me on Patreon by searching for Aaron L. Miller. That's A-A-R-O-N. L is in Larry Miller. Again, thank you so much for listening. I hope you have a great day.